Turn, if you would, to John chapter 18. Yes, we did, in fact, survive the uh, wedding last week. There's the bride. It was an exciting experience. One of her uh, friends told me afterwards that she wanted to ride on my car, uh, one down, five to go. And I said, did you really want to see me cry? (laughs) But it was good. We had uh, the groom's family staying at our house all week. They actually had their trailer parked out in the driveway, and and that actually was very nice. They're very nice people, and we actually had a really good time. Next week is Easter. Normally, I uh, don't teach Easter lessons because normally I'm in the middle of some book, and we're working our way through it, and I do whatever passage is next. But we have been working through a series called Questions That Jesus Ask. And I kind of cheated. And I jumped over to the end of John. Yes. Ah, the CDs are up to date. Outside. Um, So I jumped to the end of John and noticed a series of questions that uh, dealt with the Easter story. So we're actually going to cover five questions today, and we're going to cover the end of the book of John. That does, in fact, say John chapters 18 to 21. We're not going to read all of that. You'll be happy to know. Starting in verse 1, though, of chapter 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. You're familiar with what has happened. They've had the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and Judas has left to go get the officials. Jesus and his disciples leave the supper, and they go to pray, and that's where we are. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Interesting. They were carrying weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? And that is the first question that we're dealing with. Who is it that you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the betrayer was standing there with them. That's an interesting parenthetical statement. If Judas was there, why did they need Jesus to identify himself? Hmm. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Think about that for a moment. We have this impression that Jesus is caught up in events that he can't control. He is a revolutionary in the eyes of the officials. He is a rebel rouser, a causer of trouble. And they come to him at night when his crowd is not with him. They come to him at night 
armed to deal with whatever the situation is. And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, it is I. And they all fall back. Why? Why do you think they fell back? Did God speak to them? I am he. I am. The acknowledgement that he is God. I happen to think that uh, Jesus had what I might call his authoritative voice. (laughs) When Jesus stands in the boat and commands the waves to be still, they stop. Two weeks ago when we dealt with the story of Lazarus and Jesus yells into the tomb, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus comes forth. It is an authoritative voice that is identified by the listener as more than just some person talking. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where it says that the crowds were astonished because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. I don't know what these people were expecting to find in this garden at night. Actually, I do. They were expecting a rebel rouser, a revolutionary. And when Jesus spoke, they were shocked and astounded, and they fell back. Jesus was not out of control. Jesus was not being carried along by a series of events that he had no control over. Jesus was in control of the entire situation. Remember that. Remember that as we approach the Easter season and we think of this innocent man being carted off and executed. Remember he did it of his free will. He did it on our behalf. He is not just caught up in the circumstances. He knows what he is doing. You have to accept the fact that it would have been easy for him to run away. It would have been easy for him to slip out the dark back way of the garden while the torches and weapons were coming in the front side. But he didn't do that. It would have been easy enough for him to use his authoritative voice and say, no, I'm not he, he's over there. But he didn't do that. The question that he asked them is, who are you looking for? And the question that Easter asks us is, who are we looking for? Are we looking for the next revolutionary? Are we looking for somebody who's just causing trouble? Then we're looking for the wrong person. Are we looking for somebody that is out of control, that has no control over the circumstances, then we're looking for the wrong person. If we're looking for the Christ, the Messiah, who is in the garden praying for our future, then we're looking for the right person. You know the rest of the story. They continue on, they arrest him, and they start a series of trials. Picking up in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. 
Remember, at this point, we're still in the Jewish courts, such as they are. And I will say such as they are because we're not talking a legitimate court here. You don't hold legitimate courts in the middle of the night at the high priest house. You hold legitimate courts in public in daylight. The priest knew what they wanted to do with Jesus. We have seen this repeatedly in the lessons over the last 18 weeks where Jesus will ask the Pharisees, he will ask the officials a question, they will answer, he will catch them in a bind, and it says, loose translation, they really get ticked off and they want to kill him. Jesus had been meeting publicly, and they are trying him in private. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Why question me? Why are they questioning Jesus? Come on, this is an easy question. Why are they questioning Jesus? They want him to say something that could be used against him. Anybody else? He was a threat, and they wanted to prove he was a threat. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. We have seen repeatedly. This is the image that I have, okay? And this is just my picture of things. Jesus is talking to a group of people. We see this repeatedly. It can be a small group of people. It could be a huge group of people. But I always believe that on the periphery, on the edge of this crowd, were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious officials kind of watching. Because you see them every once in a while, they jump into the conversation. And Jesus is saying, well, he didn't say this, I'll say it. Your spies have been watching me. Your spies know everything that I've said. Everything that I teach, all of it has been open to the public. Why are we here in the middle of the night asking me questions about what I teach? What Jesus knows is they're not interested in what he teaches. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in the fact that this is the Messiah come into their midst. What they're interested in is getting rid of him because he is a threat to their power, their influence, and their way of thinking. So the question to us is, why are we asking questions? I'm a firm believer in asking questions. I ask questions all the time. When I prepare a lesson, I will go through a passage and I'll write out questions. You know, here are the questions that I think I need to address here are the questions that I hope nobody asks because I don't know the answer to. You know, that's what I do. I'm a big fan of questions. 
The question is, what is the purpose of the question? Is the purpose of the question to understand the truth? Then you would be Nicodemus coming to Jesus and going, please, what does this mean? Or is the purpose of the question to disprove the validity of who Christ is in order to protect yourself? Go ahead. Well, people are insane. His observation was they cannot believe that he is the Messiah and do what they're doing, and that's true. But you see, our beliefs blind us so that we can't see the truth that is right in front of us. That's why in the book of John, Jesus spends a couple of chapters after he heals the blind man, physical blindness, dealing with the reality of spiritual blindness. They couldn't see the truth because they were blinded by their preconceptions and the sin in their life. Jesus asked them, Jesus asked them, why are you asking me these questions? Yes. Oh, yes. He was making demands on them and not promising them an earthly kingdom where we kick the Romans out of the country. And by the way, you Pharisees get to be second in command. That's not what he was promising them. That's what they wanted, but that's not what he was promising them. I mean, let's face it. If you're looking for a political leader to kick out the Romans, and do great things, this guy doesn't fit. He doesn't fit the picture. But once again, what does Easter ask of us? It asks, why are you questioning this? You will see this repeatedly in newspapers and magazines around the Easter season where people will go, why do people believe the resurrection? And you know what? There are legitimate questions that people ask, unbelievers ask about the resurrection. But the resurrection is important. We're going to see that in just a moment. The question we have to ask is why are we asking the questions? You know, I've talked with people before, and I've answered a lot of questions. People will come to me and, you know, what about this? What about that? And at some point, you begin to understand you've crossed that line. They're no longer interested in the truth. They're just interested in asking the questions. So Jesus asked them, why are you asking the question? When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Once again, we have this progression of working our way up the hierarchy, which brings us 
to the next one. Skip over to verse mm, 33. Eventually they take him to Pilate. Pilate is not a Jew. Pilate is the Roman governor. Why is that significant? Well, the Romans gave the Jews a certain amount of autonomy in keeping their laws, but the Jews could not kill someone, and they wanted Jesus dead. Now, you've got to think about this for a while. You've got to think about what this says about their hatred for Jesus. Bottom line, Jesus was a Jew, okay? I don't know if y'all want to get into any huge theological debate about that. If you do, you're wrong, okay? Jesus was a Jew. And the Jews are very interested in protecting the Jews against the outsider, particularly against the Romans. You've got to accept the fact that they really, really wanted to get Jesus if they were willing to take this, at the bottom line, a Jew, and drag him before this Roman official and demand that he kill him. They really have to dislike this guy. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, he did not ask Jesus any theological question, or at least he didn't think he was. He is a political person, a political animal. He doesn't care what Jesus thinks about the Sabbath day. He doesn't care what Jesus thinks about healing. He doesn't care what Jesus thinks about predestination. What he cares about is politics. What he cares about is power. And what he cares about is making sure that the Romans in Rome understand that Pilate is controlling the area that has been assigned to him. That's all he's interested in. So his first question is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked the question to him. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Is that your own idea? Think about that. Think about what Jesus is saying to him. Pilate, you understand kings. You understand power. You understand influence. And by the way, Pilate has his spies his underlings, his intelligence network. What do you think, Pilate? Is there any reason, any reason at all that you would think that I am a political threat to the Roman Empire? Or are you just listening to what this crowd over here is saying? Do you have any reason to believe what you're telling me, or are you just being fed this information? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. And you kind of detect this sneer, you know. 
what, what do you take me for? Am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? There's a certain amount of, he's dumbfounded. I mean, as I said earlier, you've got to really get these people ticked off. If you're going to take them to the hated person, I mean, let's just make up a scenario, shall we? I mean, this is totally made up. It is 1942, and you're in the middle of Germany, and you're Jewish, and your neighbor is Jewish, but you don't like your neighbor. So you run over to the Gestapo, and you say, I'm a good Jew, and he's not a good Jew. You should kill him. You've got to really hate somebody, and be really stupid, by the way, to do that. And Pilate says... It's your people and your chief priest. What in the world have you done that would get them so mad at you? Jesus replied, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is he saying? He's saying, you know those people, those chief priests who handed me over? They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in the reality they are interested in their power, just like you're interested in your power, Pilate. And you know what? I do have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. The question is asked, is this your own idea? We have to stop and think sometimes as we approach Easter. We have these ideas about Easter. And the question we ask is, is it our idea? Or is it just something that we've heard, we've gotten used to, we've gotten accustomed to? And so we go, yeah, Easter's fun. Ladies dress up nicely. We go out in the backyard and the little kids look for Easter eggs. It's a nice day. Or do we recognize that Easter is, in fact, the sign of Christ's kingdom in this world. As we see, not the death, but the victory over death, the victory over death itself, do we see that Christ is the king? Christ is the king, but not of the Roman Empire, not of Palestine 2,000 years ago, but he is the king over all and over everything. No, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's like he's telling Pilate, no, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to report back to the Roman Empire that I'm going to overthrow the Romans. But I am a king. 
That's why I was born, and that's why I'm here. Now, if we had a more time, we could get into the discussion of what follows, because you know the famous statement that Pilate says. What in the world is truth? Pilate wasn't interested in truth. Pilate was interested in power. Huh. The chief priests weren't interested in truth. They were interested in their power and their influence. Their position was threatened, and uh, they had to do something about it. No matter how wicked and evil it might be. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. The choice was given to the officials, the Jewish officials, and they chose Barabbas over Jesus. They didn't care about real revolutionaries. They didn't care about people trying to get rid of the Romans. They cared about the Messiah that they didn't want to recognize. So, the next chapter, you know what happens. The crucifixion occurs, and we get to chapter 20. Let's get a running start in this and pick up in verse 10 of chapter 20. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? You know, that may be high on the list of stupid questions to ask. I mean, obviously they know why she's crying. They were crying. She was crying because Jesus was dead. Hmm, maybe it's not that stupid of a question. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it, he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Arabic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus was crucified. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. End of story. End of the discussion. No, because if that were the end of the discussion, we would not be meeting here today. Somewhere, somebody got this bizarre idea that Jesus was killed, Jesus was stuck in a tomb, 
And these disciples, the 11 that were left after Judas had left, these disciples went back to some inn or some meeting place and they plotted on how they were going to bring Christianity into existence. Somehow, some way, they were going to capitalize on this problem with a good PR firm. They were going to come out and say, Christianity is a great thing, even though Jesus is dead. Several, several years ago, there was a book uh, written, uh, the, mo- the 100 Most Influential People in History. And uh, it really wasn't a very good book, by the way. And I think Jesus was number two or three. Um, but the author said they wanted to put Paul ahead of Jesus but they knew they'd get in trouble if they did that. But the reason they wanted to do that was because they knew Paul had invented Christianity. Jesus was dead. He was buried. The disciples didn't sit around trying to figure out how to form a new religion on the basis of this dead teacher. The disciples fled. Christianity was over. There wasn't an organized resistance. There wasn't an organized body that was going to try to bring something out of the ruins of this death. It was over. End of story. But they still had an emotional attachment to Jesus. They loved Jesus. You remember several weeks ago when we talked about Lazarus and it said that Jesus wept? He wept because he loved him. These people, these disciples, the ladies, they loved Jesus and they wept. And they came to the tomb to honor the body. First off, the guard was gone. Second off, the stone was moved. And thirdly, the tomb was empty. Now, we cheat. We know the story. Just to, once again, make up a, a, a scenario. Your loved one dies, and you bury him or her at the cemetery. And a week later, you go there, and the hole is empty. It's been dug up. The coffin is sitting there, and there's no one in it. What is your first assumption? Somebody moved them. Why? Why would they do that? Now, we just understood that the Jews really hated Jesus. They really did. If they hated him enough to hand him over to the Romans, surely they hated him enough to take his body to make sure that nobody would do homage to him after he died. So you're Mary and you're the disciples and you're going, they've taken the body. I mean, you have to really hate somebody. But they did. They really did. Where did they take the body? Now, there are those who believe that the Jewish officials did take the body, and they hid it. But you know, that doesn't make any sense. Because a year later, when Christianity is turning the Jewish world upside down, all they had to do was produce the body. And they didn't. Why? Because there was no body. Or maybe the disciples took the body. 
and hid it and told people that he was resurrected from the dead. That doesn't make any sense. If you knew it was a lie, would you be willing to die for it? A lot of people die for false teachings. They fly airplanes into buildings. They do all kinds of bizarre things. But they don't do it when they know it's a lie. They do it because they believe it's the truth. If the disciples had taken the body in order to create this thing we call Christianity, would all of them, all of them, be willing to die for it? Not some of them, all of them. That just doesn't make any sense. So Mary says, what have you done with the body? And Jesus replies, woman, why are you crying? There's that stupid question again. But it's not that stupid. Who is it you are looking for? That sounds a whole lot like the question that Jesus asked in the garden when they came with the torches and the weapons. Who are you looking for? Mary, who are you looking for? Are you looking for a great teacher? A great teacher like Socrates or some other great teacher who is dead? Is that who you're looking for, Mary? Not here. If you're looking for the Christ, the Messiah, the person who has victory over death, well, here I am. The question is asked once again to us. Who is it that we are looking for? Are we looking for a teacher that shows us the right path, that will make our life easier, that will take care of our problems, that will give us comfortable days, all the days of our life? Is that who we're looking for? Or are we looking for the Christ? We know we know Pilate wasn't looking for the Christ. He was looking for power. We know that the chief priest wasn't looking for the truth. He wasn't looking for the Christ. He was worried about a threat to his influence. But the question is, what are we looking for? What are we looking for when we come to Easter and we see the resurrected, the open tomb? Are we going, hmm, odd story? I'm sure he was a great guy. I've told you before, I had a professor in a graduate humanities course that I took, and she really liked Jesus. She liked Jesus and she liked Socrates. Those were her two greatest teachers. They were both killed for their teaching. But they were the same. Is that what you're looking for? Then the open tomb makes no sense. Somebody must have carted off the body. But that doesn't make any sense. One more, and we'll get to the end of this. Jumping over to chapter 21. You know what's happened at the beginning of chapter 21. The disciples go back to fishing. Now, this isn't a story about when the going gets tough, men go fishing. What it is, is when three years of your life has just gone down the tubes because this teacher that you were following 
dies, you go back to doing what you did before. You go back to making a living. You go back to being fishermen. And Jesus shows up. First off, he asked them for some food. And then in verse 15, he says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, You remember Simon, right? I will follow you to the death. No, you won't, Simon. In fact, you're going to deny me three times. No, not me. And some child comes up to him and says, Oh, you're a follower of Jesus. And he says, to be polite, he says, Hell no. There's a curse thrown in there. No way, Jose. Three times he denies that he is a follower of Christ. Jesus has just finished eating with them. little speculation. Peter, big, bold, brash Peter, is sitting over on the corner waiting to get bashed. You know, the child who has done something wrong, the child who knows that he's done something wrong, the child who knows the punishment is coming, he's just waiting for it. And that's Peter at this point. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you tr truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you, where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. A child comes up to Peter and intimidates him. But the resurrection has occurred. The resurrection has occurred and Peter and James and John and name the other 11 that I can't remember all their names, every one of them will boldly go and proclaim the truth even to the point of death. What's the difference? They're on the other side of the resurrection. On the other side of the resurrection, everything changes. It isn't just a good teacher. I liked his teaching. I'll go talk about his teaching to other people. He is the Christ, the Messiah, and he has risen from the dead. Peter is waiting for a tongue lashing. How many times did he deny Jesus? Three times. So three times Jesus asked, do you love me? 
If you want to look at the words, it actually is an interesting play on words in this verse. You know that in Greek there are at least four different words for love. There is agape, which is the unconditional love that we are to show to each other and that Christ shows to us. There is philio, which is where we get Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, you know, just kind of kinship. What is going on here is Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly agape, love me unconditionally more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I filio, brotherly love, love you. Jesus says, do you, Peter, agape me? And he says, Lord, I filio you. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, do you love me with brotherly love? Do you filio me? We'll start there. Peter, we'll start there. But the bottom line, Peter, is if you love me, if you love me, there's work to be done. The sheep need to be fed. On numerous occasions, Jesus would look at the crowds and he would say, it's wheat ripe for harvest. Where are the harvesters? Or he would say they are sheep without a shepherd. And he would weep for them. And now Jesus is going back to heaven and he turns to Peter and he says, you love me? You really love me? Okay, you sort of love me? We'll go from there. If you love me, you know those sheep out there? They need to hear the message. And Peter says, you know that I love you. Peter, go feed the sheep. Peter, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life, but that's your job. Your job is to feed the sheep. Not a job as in, I'm going to pay you for it. You really can't pay a person enough to go get executed for a false teaching. But we're on the other side of the resurrection now. Peter knows that Jesus was killed. Peter knows that he's not dead and he's standing in front of him right now. And he knows that Jesus is telling him to go feed the sheep. So, the question is asked of us. Do you love me more than anything else? If so, we're to go feed the sheep. The sheep are those who need to hear the truth. They can be children. They can be adults. They can be anybody. It can be the person on the corner. It can be the person that sits in the office next to us at work. It can be our neighbor. It can be anybody. If you love me, you will go feed the sheep. And remember, we're on this side of the resurrection. We're not on the other side. 
On the other side, there was fear and trembling because we didn't know. But we're on this side of the resurrection. And Peter says, Lord, I love you. And by his life, we know that he went and fed the sheep, even to the point of death. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection. I pray, Lord, that each of us would live our lives not in fear and trembling, but in light of your victory over death. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.